Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph ben Murgy. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi, uh, episode I don't know what. Uh, happy to be with you. Uh, just finished doing a three-part workshop on how to create your own spiritual toolkit. And I had no idea what it was going to be like to do it because I'd never moderated or hosted one of these before. Had a very nice turnout of people from a synagogue in Toronto. And I do workshops like this on aging to saging, but I, this is the first one I did on, you know, sort of do it yourself spirituality. And it sort of comes out of the idea that I always say to people that, you know, spirituality is about relationships between you and yourself, you and others, and you and the universe we happen to be uh, lucky enough to be in and the mortal moment we happen to be living in it. Um, and religion is an attempt at a fitness program. If you do these things, if in our case, if you have a Friday night Sabbath, if you have certain things that you can cleave to, it's like wanting to have a, an abdominal six pack. That's nice. Are you going to actually do anything to get that six pack? No. So, okay, you don't get the six pack. So um, it's important to have rituals and, and, and abilities to have rites of passage. You know, you see people go back to church when their kid is born. You see people go back to a synagogue when one of their parents passes away and they want a, a way to, to actually ritualize the grief and do something with it. So it's all very interesting. But in the toolkit at one point, there's something in, in Hebrew that's, um, it means repair of the world, tikkun olam, and that there's a, a, an imperative for you to do that, to try to repair the world. And what that's become in a lot of areas is social action committees at churches, at mosques, you know, and they're really good and they're really well-meaning and they're about reaching out to the community. But what I realized in the toolkit workshop was there's two streams to repair of the world. There's the outer repair of the world, but to really make it impactful, it's really about an internal repair of the world, your world, how you do your life take it apart piece by piece. Um, there's something in, in Judaism called Musar. And in Musar, you take character or soul traits and you work on them one week at a time. Humility, generosity, silence, patience, awe, order, honor. And you take one a week and you, you write about it and notice where it is in your life and you, you, you meditate and contemplate on it, and you start to surface these things that are actually the building blocks of becoming better. You know, it's one thing to think, oh, well, I hope I get an aha moment. I hope this really works out well for me. And that's kind of what, you know, shopping for God. But really, it's your work, and you got to do your work. If you're in a craft, you realize you can really want to be good at it, or you can decide that you really have to practice your craft and think about it consciously. So this is no different. This is about an internal repair of the world so that you can be useful in the repair of the outer world uh, as someone who, who knows where they're coming from, but also when others work with them can feel inspired by your attempt to be a better person. Which brings me to someone who I knew when we were both on the Let's Get Famous track uh, many years ago in the CBC. And I love the guy. I just thought, I love this guy. He's so interesting and smart and funny and all these things and was doing great. Uh, but over the years in the social media world, especially I'd say in the last five years, four years, I noticed there was an evolution, I think, of something else. 
as a as a father, as a human, as someone who who wants to be sincere and, and open hearted. And I, I kept thinking, got to get in touch with him. Got to just see how he's doing. But I have this thing where I think people don't really want to get in touch with me, so I don't bother. I just think, yeah, he's going to go. No, don't want to talk to him. Uh, but I was wrong, thank God. So the man I'm talking about is Jonathan Torrens, who is a nice boy from Sherwood PEI uh, and has done lovely, lovely things. And I just felt like Every time I'd read a tweet, I'd just think, wow, something's going on here. I got to find out what it is. So I figured I'd have mine. I was talking to somebody earlier today who remembered him from Jonovision, which he had, and, you know, Street Sense when he did it out in the Maritimes. And, you know, he's been on, uh, you know, all kinds of shows, Trailer Park Boys, and he's, he's a wonderful actor and writer and director and producer, just a talent. But I, I want to talk about the Jonathan Torrens that has become. So welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi, Mr. Torrens. It's such a pleasure to be here. And even hearing your voice is such a treat. I think you grossly underestimate the amount of real estate you occupy in my head and in my memory bank. I know uh, there was a strong argument for uh, Moonlighting as being the show that had the best chemistry of any duo on TV at the time. I would put you and Valerie Pringle uh, in that conversation um for days yeah absolutely. i uh i'm a big fan and um i loved that show and that was uh really a formative show for me at a formative time in my life so even hearing your voice just brings me tremendous joy it's wonderful because you know it's interesting when i think about leaving that show and i went on to do this friday night variety show which i never really felt at home in i kind of felt like it was everybody's idea at the same time and I just thought, why wasn't I, why was in such a rush? Why did I have to go somewhere else? Valerie and I had made such a lovely environment and container for everything, a magazine show, you know, anything from uh, Eartha Kitt to the foreign minister of Jordan during the Iraq war, you know, and I just love the, the range of that. But it's interesting to hear you say that stuff because you don't, it's, I don't know about you, but there are times where people talk to me about things I've done and I just think, oh, how did you know that? And they're like, well, because you were doing it in public. Right. <laughs> it's funny. I, I, I have actually cited the Ben Murgy principle before, and that is being a funny person on a show that people don't expect there to be a funny person right. is actually a great default because to be the super funny guy in a news context, that's really comforting. And then suddenly I've always wondered how you felt when you were propelled to being front and center on Friday night, which is about as big a pitch as you get in Canada. And um, suddenly people are sitting back with their arms crossed going, all right, so you are, you do think you're funny. Like that must've been an extraordinary amount of pressure. Well, you know, it's interesting because what happened for me anyway, was I realized partway through the experience. First of all, it was a very lonely experience, but I realized partway through it that I didn't have, you know, I started in stand-up at Yuck Yucks when it opened. So, you know, me, a whole bunch of great comedians and people who everybody know now, like Howie Mandel and Jim Carrey. And Jim and Howie were fully committed to funny. 
They were going to do whatever it took. And I always had the serious part that held me back from wanting to be that funny because I really felt sincerely earnest about certain things that go on in the world. And I was just as interested in the minutiae of the colonial empires of the Middle East as I was in funny and probably more interested in it. So I didn't, you know, if you, if you ever watched a tape of it, you'd see me wringing my hands while I was doing the monologue. And that was me going, and here's the other really interesting part. Something in me said, it's Friday night, it's Sabbath. I shouldn't be doing this right now. Wow. Isn't that crazy? So it was what it was. So when you were doing your thing and you were John O'Visioned and you had a big show and a studio audience and the whole nine yards, where were you in your own self at that time? Um, great question. It never really felt like a big show. It wasn't that I was dissatisfied there. I think that was a great platform that allowed me to do a lot of the things that I like. I'm a genuinely curious person as well. I like to ask questions and meet people. I also do a bit of sketch. I like to sing and do music. Um, it felt like a constant wrestling match between what CBC hoped it would be and what we secretly wanted it to be. It felt like we would bank a few talk shows in a day to buy and free up some resources to do a half hour sketch episode or battle of the bands or thing that really kind of gave us oxygen. And it was um, sometimes earnest as well. Uh, we sometimes learned the hard way that if uh, we had enough time in 22 minutes to open the can of worms and not put any of the worms back in before <laughs> the episode was over, that in retrospect was kind of reckless. Um, and as you know, every frame that was shot ended up on television, there's no time for a show to find its feet or for uh, you to chuck episodes out that didn't work. And I'm sure on Friday night, it was the same thing too, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, we were live. We were literally live every Friday night. So whatever you did, you did. And then we'd go and watch um, um, Gary Shandling show, the Larry Sanders show, because it was actually making fun of what we were trying to do. And, you know, you learn other things, I think. I don't know. What have you learned, for instance, about a Canadian audience? I have learned uh, from a Canadian audience on Jonovision that maybe because they were kids or maybe because there were bigger talk shows in the States at the time that people acted the way they thought you were supposed to act in a talk show audience versus the way people actually do. Not unlike the way I find sometimes people in Toronto act. Uh, nose in the air a little cold because they kind of think that's how you're supposed to act in a big city versus the way people in a big city like New York actually do. Um, so I, I found our audience was, uh, first of all, they were bust in against their will for the first two seasons. Uh, <laughs> then they were um, asked to stay with Pizza Pizza longer than they told their parents they would be there. Um, yeah, I, I would say a little bashful, probably, uh, to be truthful. But I know I was just talking with the Letterkenny cast about doing a tour in Canada versus the States. And I'm sure you saw this as a stand-up as well. Audiences in Canada will sit with their hands folded neatly in their lap and then rave about a wonderful show they saw on the drive home. Whereas in the States, it's cheering and arms raised over their heads in elation and they're hanging on every word. And 
getting to the punchline before you and laughing at the setups. Um, yeah. How did you find the audience on Friday night? Well, you know, there were, I think I agree with you that people in any television setting think that they're supposed to behave like a television audience and they're told, you know, uh, they're, they're revved up to applaud. Uh, interesting things happen. I mean, at one point we did a sketch about Brian Mulroney resigning or, or stepping down and uh, we had a funeral for him and a wreath and I, I had a whole choir and we made, we wrote this song called He's Gone and it was total gospel and he's gone, he's gone, he's in like hysteria. And we go to commercial and for some reason the audience is so revved up that they, they started chanting my first name over and over again. And the band leader was like egging them on and I became completely mortified and turned and walked towards the band leader where the audience couldn't see my face and went, stop, hey, stop, man. And after the show, he couldn't understand why I would have done that. And I just thought, and I realized I'm in the wrong end of this donkey. That's all I know. It's not a ride I really want to take, even though I really thought I had wanted to take it. So it was an interesting Was that thing. always the goal? You know, in that part of my life, it was all about, you got to remember, my last name is Ben Mergi, right? I'm, I'm a Moroccan. I was born in Tangiers. My father was a nursing assistant, you know. Um, there is in an immigrant story, a desire for owning the town. That can be pretty strong. On the other hand, Jim uh, Carey, he had the same, he had that drive, but his father had, had failed and had failed in, in the worst way because he was really a guy who wanted to play the horn in a band, in a jazz band. But he gave it up and became a bookkeeper because he thought that was the right thing to do with a family. And that is what killed him, was being a bookkeeper. So he gave up his dream and then the alternative became a nightmare. So Jim had it burned into his head that he had to you know, write himself a check for IOU for 20 million bucks or 10 million bucks because that had to happen. And I think for a lot of people, I don't know for you if this is the case, but for a lot of people, um, you know, being public is not necessarily a mentally healthy idea. You know, look at me, love me. And I used to be asked by um, Paul McLaughlin, a, a good uh, journalist and media trainer, and he'd ask me to come in for an afternoon to train CBC on air people. And I'd say, it, here's the bad news. It's not healthy to ask everybody to love you and know your name. The good news is you have the ability to actually make them do that. The question is, now that I have your attention, what is it I want to say? And that's one of the things I felt with noticing you in the last years as you know, you're doing your thing and I'm doing mine. What has intrigued me is that you have decided there's things you really want to say and not dogmatically, not with finger wagging, but with an open heart. How did you get there? I, um, I guess to backtrack a tiny bit, I went to LA after John O'Vision, mostly just to see um, self-imposed exile. I'd been on CBC for 15 years and wanted to answer the what if question. Um, 
I had a conversation internally at CBC about taking Jonovision and doing it on the other side of the national. It just felt like the audience that grew up watching me was also now 30. And I didn't see why I couldn't just take the same format and uh, do it at night. There was a feeling internally that I hadn't proven I could carry an audience by myself. So as a Canadian, self-deprecating by nature, and East Coast Canadian, especially self-deprecating, I went to the States and was sheepish and apologetic during auditions, apologizing during auditions. This is not a gene <laughs> that Americans tend to possess. So um, came back as a lifestyle choice uh, for a couple of reasons. One with a, a bit of self-confidence, which I hadn't had before. Um, American friends were like, man, if you're not buying your own hype, why would we buy it? Like stop apologizing while you're doing something. Self-confidence just means being confident in yourself. And that I can actually quietly confess I am. Um, learned down there that you're a Ben Murgy or you're a Mark Critch or you're a Jim Carrey. You can't be all of those. And not unlike you, I am earnest as well as interested in playing characters. I feel like I draw on real life experience to do that. Um, but in the States, they wanna know which of these boxes do you fit in? And my virtue I've discovered is that I do a little bit of a lot of different things and I can do that here. So to answer your question in the most roundabout way, I uh, met a woman from Toronto, Nova Scotia, who uh, this is 12 or 13, well, we've been married for 12 years now. So this is 13 or 14 years. Carol is Carol at Sobeys at the Canadian Screen Awards in our kitchen. She is what my mother called congruent, which means who she is outside and who she is inside is always in harmony. And I'm so um, inspired by that and so content in my life with her that I realize none of the rest of it matters. Not that, not that fame, even in italics, Canadian fame was ever the thing that drove me. I didn't want it in LA bad enough to sleep on a friend's couch in Santa Monica for six months to try to get an under five on Baywatch nights that never propelled me. I've always just kind of been open to the opportunities that came my way. And so now that I'm here and Carol is Carol and I have everything I need or want, um, nothing has a power over me. Uh, there's no job or gig or kudo, if that's the singular of kudos, that would be better than finishing this and walking in my kitchen and seeing my girl there and knowing everything is right. Wow, that's beautiful. That's such an interesting journey because it's, it sounds like you had wisdom creeping in at the sides, but then you had the catalyst of the relationship of, with someone who didn't need to be someone. She was someone. And you got to just be a part of that. I wonder, the other part that seems to, for me from a distance to be shining through is the salutary effect of fatherhood. What, what How has the journey, I always say when you have kids, it changes the geography of your heart. You're not going where you were going. You're going somewhere else now. So how did it change your geography? Slowly. Um, my reference point for fatherhood, I'm sure like yours was 
uh, movie montages and Vaseline lenses and swelling orchestral music and everything <laughs> you've ever done seems insignificant. It's far more visceral than Hollywood would let on. Um, so in a way, not to suggest it was a letdown for even a moment, but it, it wasn't what I imagined it would be. Carol being Carol was silent and in control and concentrating on her breathing. She wasn't swearing at me or shrieking. Um, so it took a couple of years uh, to really get it. And, and not because I wasn't happy they were here or didn't enjoy being around them, uh, just for it to kind of become a two-way street and kind of see what my job was. A friend of mine said, uh, your voice in their head gets smaller as the years go by as soccer coaches and dance teachers and friends and bosses kind of voices start to creep in. So you have to make that count. And um, that could be everything from playing Zenyatta Mandata to them before they get control of the radio knob to um, you know how you would handle certain situations. So I remember people saying early on, you just wait, it just gets better. And you can't imagine how it gets better than four and two. And I think it's not that it's uh, better. It's just as good, but totally different. They're 11 and nine now. And it's like having tiny roommates that are a great hang that never leave. Right. Like it's such a wonderful age and uh, being at home with them for the last year has made us even closer and stronger. And, um, you know, we've been through some things and we're just really a tight unit of four. Spiritually, how's your life grown? Because I feel it. I feel there's a, a spiritual growth that you've done over the years. I would say a lot of it has to do with geography. We live, we bought a farmer's field, built a house in it. We can see anyone coming from all four directions and can retreat to the basement before they knock on the door, peek through the window. When we were building the house, the contractor said, where do you want the doorbell? And we were like, doorbell decreases our chances of pretending we're not home easily by 60%. No doorbell, please. Um, and I found especially, I've tweeted about this a bit in the last year, the more complicated things get, the more I've retreated to simplicity. Um, walking in the woods is the same in this past year as it probably was in the 1950s. COVID doesn't uh, really factor in there. So rushing water and rivers and walks and solitude has been really more important than ever and extremely grounding. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, there's a, um, I was talking at the beginning before we, we started talking together about this thing called Musar. And one of, one of the traits that is to be cultivated is awe. And I heard you say that, you know, in, in, in the urban environment, uh, it's hard to have your humility. You know, you, you are God. It's hot out, not in my house. It's cool out here. Um, stars, I've heard of them, but I haven't seen too many. Um, you're not really in your feet on this earth. You're, you're really on the pavement and you're the biggest thing in the movie, right? In the high urban environment. And it sounds like to me, your spiritual sustenance comes from being grounded, being placed in, in 
in the geography that you are and looking to that to to be part of an ecosystem as opposed to you know there's the idea that you're in a pyramid as a human and you're at the top and everything serves you underneath it or you're in an ecosystem and you appear several times but so does everything else so does you know an owl so so does everything and it, it just there you're in relationship which is what i was talking about with spirit so is that what's coming through that i'm hearing and seeing when i listen to you these days it is yeah but it's also not new i've always um even when i was working in toronto i had a place in rural nova scotia even as i remember being i think i was about 20 i bought an apple farm on 75 acres with my street sense money <laughs> it was seventy six thousand five hundred dollars and it was a house that was built in 1870. It was a Lunenburg Carpenter Gothic. And it was in the middle of nowhere. And the day after John O'Vision, I would be there. I'd drive, stop in Rivière du Loup, finish out the drive the next day and be home by myself. This is not uh, new behavior in, in that sense. I've always liked to kind of be um, adjacent to the industry, never wanted to stay in the city never wanted to go to the Giller Prize, never wanted to go to TIFF, um, always felt really uncomfortable in those places, uh, just wasn't my scene. So, um, but, so, but then what made you go and say, I'd like to stand in the spotlight? Well, I guess I was 15 and I was working at McDonald's and you got a free meal if you worked a three hour shift. So I would sometimes duck away from high school to work a lunch rush 11 to two to get my McNugget on and then kind of drop by high school. It didn't, it wasn't really something I had time to pursue. I auditioned and got on this show. And uh, so I was there for seven years. And I remember having a conversation with uh, Registrar Ryerson saying, I'd like to come study uh, radio and television arts. And she was like, why? I said, well, cause the, I think that's what I want to do for my living. She said, you're doing it. I'm like, you're right. Get out of here. So I took, get out of here. Her, her advice was um, take criticism, take on extra work, ask lots of questions as you were. Yeah, but you still wanted, is it just a coincidence that you ended up in front of a camera? Or is there something in you that wanted to be, that felt like there, you had something to say, you had something you wanted to do out there that you, you couldn't do by going to uh, a nice gothic farmhouse that you had to be able to be with everybody else with walk and ladies and gentlemen jonathan torrens and out you walk and there's a whole audience i mean that's not nothing do you know what is at the root of it i think i'm nosy and i found quite quickly that people would tell me with a camera pointed in their face especially in the early days of street sense going to interview people about illegal curbs and hockey sticks or um environmentally friendly dry cleaning chemicals people would tell you things with a camera there that they wouldn't tell their best friends. And I found as a magnifying glass, um, I really liked the access that it gave me to people. Mm. I, I think really that was the first kind of thing that hooked me. I also liked back in the day, I liked the tactile experience. I liked the responsibility of taking tapes out into the world, flying to Winnipeg, handing the camera operator the tapes and returning home with the raw, tapes that would be sculpted into a story like i really dug that part of it yeah um, i did that with radio too 
where you it's the best you pulled the tape you cut the tape you retaped it you you'd leave a strip on the wall and try to remember which what was said in that that you had to put back in somewhere else i love that yeah i love that and when mike Clanberg, who created trailer park boys and i were working at streets ends we would uh make music videos on the side save the leftover film stock in our fridge till we had enough to make a short film and in a way you had to be really sure about your idea or that you wanted to put the time and sweat equity into it um unlike this which would allow me to make a four-hour podcast tonight i i liked really being sure of the things that we wanted to make yeah i like that yeah i hear that i mean and you know part of it is not about you know look at me it's about a creative urge right and also i would say in the past year out of necessity i've been finding so much joy in creating things because I'm really back to duct taping an iPad to a ladder and biking by, like making stuff myself. And it's really forced me to find a way and uh, it's reinvigorated my creativity and reminded me of the reason that I fell in love with in the first place. So in your life life, do you, did you build that house? Do you grow your own food? Do you do these things or do you? No, we have horses. You have horses. Yeah, this is this is what I've discovered is my it. I, I went to LA to make it, as I said, without really knowing what it was. For me, it is balance and I can achieve that here. So the best days are when my hands are sore, my body's tired, my brain's tired from writing some jokes, my heart's full because we did a puzzle or played a board game checked in with my wife we have an expression let's walk about it um so when i can go to bed and i've done a little of each of these things those are the very best days and the likelihood that i can achieve all of those things in a day is best here balance important your daughter i've thought a lot about city dwellers in the last year like it must have been a very different experience on the 65th floor of a building at Young and King. Yeah. And every button, every escalator handrail, every door handle, all, all the proximity you have to people around you, the exposures potentially, that must have been a lot. Like our lives didn't actually change that much, which is pretty telling. Did you miss people? No. Did you? Um, yeah. I would say there's parts of this that I don't even realize I'm missing because you you learn to just turn them off. I'm not going to see, like I'm going to see, I now have both vaccines, so I'm going to see my 96-year-old mother up at a, a place in, in Ottawa where my rest of my siblings live. They all live in Ottawa. And... I haven't actually seen my mother in 15 months and, you know, 500 days or so. I haven't seen my mother who's 96. So when they're 96, stuff happens, right? Um, So I don't really remember the visceral experience of being around them. Um, I just gotten used to very sporadic things. I've seen the same couple of people, like two or three people here in Hamilton, um, and it's funny cause I was, I was, um, 
asked to be part of a, a group last night uh, that was a Presbyterian. They were all Presbyterian churches in the GTHA area uh, here near Hamilton, Burlington, Brampton, places like that. Uh, and they were talking about what, what's the blessing and what's the curse of what we've just been through. And, you know, virtual online congregation, for some people, it was better because they were either bedridden or don't live there anymore or found it very easy to be more outgoing because they weren't being watched by other people. But for other people, it was really hard because they really couldn't connect uh, in, a, in a way where you like hugging, just hugging people you know, uh, being close to them all the time. And, you know, I, I, I don't know what you think we're going to learn out of this, but I'd be interested out of all of this and this sort of boom, everybody stop the dance. What do you think we're going to get out of all this? I'm an optimist from way back. So who knows what I've built a wall of resistance to, and maybe there are aspects of it I haven't let myself feel. Um, but I've had this conversation with my kids a lot about knowing what a problem is. And um, it's the valley between knowing you don't have it, you haven't lost a loved one to it, and uh, being naive enough to think that everything is wonderful. They're micro disappointments. My kids have missed birthday parties and dance recitals and graduation ceremonies and hugging their grandparents and, and all of those things and they're sometimes we're so busy bucking up and being resourceful and resilient that maybe we don't sit in it enough but i'd like to think that on the other side of this maybe we'll um be less rainy day oriented or um you know when we do this then we'll take the trip or when this milestone happens then we'll do that hopefully people will just uh you know pursue joy and adventure and memories with reckless vaccinated abandon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that'd be nice. Well, there's this, when things become traumatic or radically different, um, it can awaken sometimes for people, the idea that life is not a rehearsal, right? It's not, you know, later. If I, I need to do this now. I'm not crazy about doing it and I'm going to keep doing it, but I need to do it now. And so I'm kind of hopeful that people will have learned from the experience how much of life is a, a non-essential busyness, right? Like just the people in this area who commute to work three hours a day in a car to get to a place come home and sleep in the, in the house, don't live in the house. You know, home improvement has become a very big thing because people look around and go, oh, I live here. Well, oh, maybe I should paint that wall because it's filthy, right? And, and, and we're not really present. Do you do any kind of practices that enhance your sense of being available and present? Do you, do you meditate or do any of those things? Not specifically. Um, Walking is a big one. Mm. Um, we camp. And if you told me three years ago we would be campers, I might have begged to differ or said that I, I'm not the camping type. The thing that we've discovered we really like about camping is when you're camping, that's what you're doing. If we're home, one of us would be apt to think, no, I should probably do the dishes or fold the laundry or I better mow the lawn or something. 
when you're camping, you are sitting there. And it's the same thing when we're walking, you can't actively be doing something else while you're visiting. We are just talking and hanging out. Um, the, the weirdest part about living in LA, um, just further to what you're saying is, I started to do the math on how much time I was spending commuting and you get in this weird mindset where you're like an hour and 40 minutes to Burbank. That's actually not too bad. <laughs> and I remember I auditioned for a casino commercial and it was really not what I'd hoped for myself. Um, and I got in the car to drive home the hour and 40 minutes back to Venice. And I called my mom who was in Halifax said, what are you up to? And she said, uh, I'm going to the dentist. I'm a little nervous about it. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. At the end of my life, do I want to be the guy that took his mom to the dentist? Or do I want to be the guy who's waiting by the phone to do a Vegas casino commercial? That right. The only thing worse than not getting it is getting it and having to show up in a tux and shill for some hurrahs casino. Yeah, I really suck. I tried it again to do, uh, you know, voice work and commercials, which at the, when I used to be an actor in my 20s, uh, you know, the guy before me, <clears throat> would be leaving his feet inside the booth as he delivered the line. And then I'd go in there and I, all I could think is ir irony, irony, irony. Like, wh what is this I'm selling? And I know that with my own kids, all of them, I, in terms of media training for them, <clears throat> I made a real point of ridiculing in every commercial I saw. So if it was a Ford F-150, I had to do the voice of the Ford F-150. At least you can do the voice. Yeah, well, the, I, I'm still know, waiting for mine to change. In a time, in a yeah. place, Academy Award winner, Jonathan I Torrey. wish. Yeah, except I, I can't I do it with do a straight voice. face. That's my problem. I know. Well, when I went there, uh, because of the apologizing during auditions, my manager said, we're going to get you a commercial agent just so you can get a thicker skin, get used to walking into the room, winning over a group of people and leaving. And man, if you want to uh, find something you're bad at, in my case, it was auditioning for commercials. There's a bunch of guys in deep V t-shirts that are like, I look like they're before shot. And it's a skill to be able to take a diet sprite and go, it's a skill I don't possess for the same reason that every time I feel like I just need a tongue scraper, I can't beam at the camera. I don't like having still photographs taken. It's the least favorite part yeah, of the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just can't turn that on. It doesn't feel I, le I learned a trick for the still photo, which I, can't, I first certainly don't smile, teethy smiles. I just go. Uh, but I, I learned to count with, with the photographer knowing I'm counting. So that I'd say, I'm going to count to three and then take the shot. <clears throat> and I'd go one, two, three. And I'd look it, look it through the lens or I'd happy through the lens for a moment, whatever the hell I had to do. <clears throat> and I thought this is the only way I can do this is to make it as intentional as possible. But I think we share that same gene of do I want to, drive my mother to the dentist or do I want to be going chiclets? They're the best. Right. <clears throat> but you know, who am I to judge for other people? It's nothing. It's easy. It lets them have the time and money to drive their mother to the dentist. Right. Exactly. So, I've also discovered later in life, um, the power of the word no. And so I say no 
to things that come my way, which don't get me wrong. It's not like my phone is ringing off the hook or I have a whole bunch of opportunities all the time. But if it doesn't, I have three criteria, fun, money, challenge. Fun, and money, any, challenge. And any gig has to have two of them. So the fun challenge ones have actually been the best opportunities for growth or chance to play a character I've never played before, something against type or chance to travel somewhere I've never been or chance to take the family with me. But anytime I've done something for just one, I think we probably all know which one of those three you might (laughs) jump at. It's never been satisfying, hasn't felt good. It's it's been a clam. Did you uh, gain 40 pounds? Did, yes. Did, what was that for? For the trailer park? That's what it says on Wikipedia. I think that was just in life. Oh, you just I gained went through a 40 pounds. Oh. I think so. Wow. I lost a bunch of weight when I went through a bad breakup and then kind of probably swung to the other end of the pendulum. But the nice thing is Carol likes me farm sized. She doesn't want me in skinny <laughs> jeans. Like most country gentlemen, she wants me to be able to get on my back and help under a tractor if it's needed. <laughs> the best it is the best acceptance acceptance of oneself yeah well that's you see to me that's what i'm hearing as the journey was all those little things like oh you know what if i should maybe she go to la maybe she try this out maybe it'll work out for me but really it became a, a journey to to accepting who you are and what actually makes you happy as opposed to what i should be and what might make me happy. Maybe I doubt it. That's why I'm apologizing in the middle of this audition, right? Well, I think, um, as I'm sure was the case for you, uh, places like CBC had a lot of power over me and their approval meant a lot and my future was in their hands. And, um, you know, they've had a a complicated relationship with um, their stars in quotes. Um, the place has uh, wrestled with um, the ratio of arrogance to relevance for a long time. And uh, I just don't, it, it, they don't have any power over me anymore. Um, and that is so liberating. It's not just that place, like people in any positions of power that could do something for me. I don't need anything done. So I've found when I say no, it kind of puts people in a, a defensive position where they're like, well, what would it take to make it a yes? More money, better, better working conditions, uh, more creative freedom. Yeah. But no has been a game changer. It's a hard one for anybody, but it's a hard one in, in, in this business more than any that I can think of is because you don't know where the next gig's coming from. So if you say no, what happens if something doesn't happen for 18 months? It's, oh, damn, I really should have said yes, because... I have to say yes, because I, I interviewed Michael Caine once and, and uh, Michael Caine has done some fantastic movies and he's done movies Heard that of them. absolutely awful. Right. And I, I didn't get into that. I just said, uh, how do you feel about saying no to, to work? And he said, I, I never say no to work. I come from poverty. Uh, my friends in the business uh, ended up with franchises that they could do. Sean Connery, people like that. They had, you know, the Bond movies and Roger Moore and all these people who could hang their hat on something they knew they were going to make money from. He said, I never shook the idea that I had, that I'm poor and that I have to say yes to everything. So I, you know, ask me to be in a movie, I'll be in your movie. 
And I thought, how interesting, because he still ended up doing a lot of great work, but he couldn't ever get to know. He had to well, say I realized this. that in my 20s and 30s, I had two gears, work and worry. Right. And I didn't ever really just be. And you have to fight for that as a freelancer, as you know. Mm. And I guess at a certain point, if you've been working for 20, 25 years, 30 years, you can trust enough that something will come along. For me, it was um, diversifying a little bit. Um, I have trailers that I rent to movies and TV shows. So if oh, yeah. if uh, my on-camera-ness is uh, hills and valleys, that's something that's steady and just kind of plods along. Um, that's made it easier to be a little selective. And I'm especially glad in the last 15 months that I haven't relied on a three-episode arc on Heartland to feed my family. <laughs> Because that would have been some pretty lean times. <laughs> Kids, it's beans and hot dogs again. Yeah. And both from the same can, I might add. So enjoy. Yeah, exactly. Eat up. The fancy stuff. So were you brought up in a church-going family? Or was that just like, no, we don't do this? My dad was from England. He died when I was eight. But he wow. had a quite... Um, uh, he had dalliances with a bunch of different religions. And though I was young, I know enough to know that he was Baha'i when he died. Okay. Um, he exposed my sister to a number of different religions. His thing was, I'll, any religion you're interested in, I'll take you there um, so you can decide for yourself. And then I remember being baptized when I was 12 into the Roman Catholic Church. I think I asked to be um, but I wouldn't fit in the bassinet. So I remember the priest pouring water from a pitcher over my head. Why and did you ask to be? Because I think after my dad died, I kind of wanted to be a part of something. Right. I think a lot of people in my neighborhood were. And I remember my godfather saying, Jesus Christ, why don't you just get the garden hose, Father? And I remember my head being soaked in holy water and thinking, he just took the Lord's name in vain in the church. I'm pretty sure that's on the list of don'ts. But I, I was, uh, I was sort of freaked out by Catholicism because it, it even at that age felt like people chanting things in unison that they didn't necessarily mean. Um, it kind of freaked me out a little bit. That kind yeah, of threw him with him in him and the unity of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't ascribe. Whether So I could walk up to anyone in a synagogue halfway through a service after everybody has sung a song together and 80%, 85% of that congregation, I could say, what did you just say? In English, what is it you just said that you just sang in Hebrew? And they would have to go, um, don't know. And I think, no, that doesn't, it doesn't mean that you don't mean something. What you're doing is together singing some gibberish that you've all grown up with that puts you in a beautiful place. So just as they're putting the Torah back into the ark, you end up with the last line, which is just as the doors close. Hadesh, Hadesh Yameinu, Hadesh Yameinu. Kick it down.
does it really matter that I didn't know what that was in English? No, it didn't. That was beautiful. And, it's and, also not where I thought you were going. I thought you were going to say anyone could tell you exactly what it means. No. And, and when the mass was in Latin, you didn't know, and the clerics knew, but it didn't matter. It was that we had all decided to come together in this place at this moment in this time. And it's like you too goes to Kazakhstan and nobody speaks English, but they can all wave their phones and go still haven't found what I'm, because it doesn't matter that they don't See, know. See, I was going to go where the hills have no name. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's not even a song where the streets have no name. Where the streets have no name. Alas, yeah, and, and it doesn't point is a good one. And it doesn't matter uh, because really it's about uh, being together. And, and that's one of those things that, like, it's interesting. First of all, your father uh, uh, being on the Baha'i Trail, I've just worked with the, the folks who did uh, uh, Little Mosque on the Prairie. And we did a few little TV specials together and um, they're Baha'is. And there's beautiful things in that religion. And one of them is know as much as you can about every religion. Another one, which is quite lovely, is if you have a boy and a girl child, it is incumbent on you if you can only educate one of them to educate the girl, because she will be the one to raise the children in closest proximity from the beginning. Oh, wow. So they should be educated. So there's every religion has beautiful things in it. There's a... Um, a uh, One River Many Wells is a book by uh, a Catholic who was excommunicated, Matthew Fox. And what he said is that Christianity and Catholicism had devolved into Jesusolatry. It was all about the worship of Jesus. And what he wanted was creation spirituality. What you do when you take a walk, let's walk about it. And you go out there and you're just there or when you're camping and you're just there, is what he wants us to go back to, that sense of awe, that sense of respect for the fact that this is just a blink in the eye of the universe. That, you know, somebody, I read nine billion trillion stars. That's the estimate of the, in the 500 million galaxies that there are nine billion trillion stars. It is nothing but, to me, arrogant that we think that we're the point of this story, right? We're just a molecule in the body of it. See, I can't. I can't think about that because that makes my brain melt. <laughs> like, that. that is, uh, it is wonderful. It is literally awe-inspiring. But if I start to try to do that math, I will... Uh, breakdown. Well, okay, but the, maybe it's not about actually having to do that math, just being in that math. The fact that you're taking the walk, and if you stop for a minute, and there's just enough wind that there's a clacking sound as the trunks of trees are kind of playing their dance, and then you hear one bird having to leave one branch to move to another, that that happens to be where we are in that 9 billion trillion stars. And our appreciation doesn't have to be, it's like climate change. You can't put your arms around climate change. It's too big an existential an idea, but you can take note of the climate in which you are actually physically present at this moment. Do you know, I, I think the closest thing I, I could um, uh, say to that is we notice the corn growing 
every day. Exactly. The corn grows an inch to an inch and a half a day on our road. And every day with the same amount of wonder, one of us is like, oh, look at the corn. Yeah, the corn's higher today than it was yesterday. Well, huh. Exactly, exactly. But that's, that's being in it. That's being present, right? There's this idea that, you know, um, life is just this linear, this line, this horizontal line. And you're born and you get older and you die and that's that. But really, it's the vertical line that cuts through it at this very moment is the only real moment there is. So yesterday's corn is yesterday's corn. Tomorrow's corn isn't here yet. But in that moment that you look at that stock and think, I'm starting to see the corn actually come out at this point. Isn't that fantastic? That's it. That's all you got, right? I wish I could uh, say that I have it down. It's a struggle for me as it is with everyone, work-life balance and especially working from home and um, knowing when to put this down and pick a kid up and prioritizing all those things. Um, but there are more moments a day where I feel like I'm getting it than ever before. Mm. That feels you, good. What do you attribute that to? Carol. She's, um, she's just a, a great reminder. She's just got it dialed. Um, she's not on social media, for example. Uh, she doesn't really get it, um, nor is she interested in it. She's uh, happy for me that I enjoy my work, but not impressed by it in any particular way. Um, much of our life has to do with other things besides what we do for a living. Um, I think those are great starts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's so interesting to get through all this, isn't it? You know, it is. It's. It's. Funny. I will. Um, I will share with you one of the questions that you asked in an interview that sticks with me to this day. Um, and it has to do with finding an access from a different angle. You were interviewing John Travolta in Vancouver on a junket. You remember? You bet. And you were probably person 109 of 250 in a day. And you said you could tell his eyes were glazed over when you walked in. And you asked him, you remember the question? The last question I asked him is, what effect has having millions of dollars had on your ability to form friendships? That was the last oh, question I asked him. It's a great question. How did he answer it? He, blew, he just blew his mind. Like that interview, they told me that usually you get five minutes on these horrible junkets where you just want to have a shower when you're finished the circuit of people. And they said, I got a phone call um, from Donnelly April, the producer who said, uh, Donna phones me and she says, uh, it's down to three minutes. Everybody gets three minutes with John Travolta on this one. And he was doing a horrible film, a General's Daughter. It was just awful. And you could tell he knew it was just awful, but they'd given him 20 million bucks. And so I thought, okay, I'm not going to talk about the movie at all. So I read some articles about things he'd been doing lately. And my first question was... I remember. What was it? What's Vancouver like as a city to fly into? Exactly. Shuck him out of his oh, yeah. doldrums. He was just like, oh, well, let me tell you, that's beautiful. Because you're coming in off the water... And there's the lights, because I knew we'd done two films in Vancouver. And then I said, why do you barnstorm 
Kirstie Alley's uh, house because I knew they were neighbors and they were both Scientologists. And he said, well, uh, first of all, because I love barnstorming. Secondly, she asks me to, so I do it. And then I said, what's an assist? So instead of saying, why are you a Scientologist? I wanted to know what is an assist, which is a detail of Scientology. And he said, well, uh, it's a laying, uh, he said, in Scientology. I said, yes. He says, it's a, it's a kind of a laying on of hands without actual physical contact. And I sometimes do that with Kirsty, and she does it for me. Uh, and that's what we do. And then I, I remember I asked him one more question. Uh, and then I said that question about money. And he went, well, okay, that is the best, one of the best questions I've been asked to date. And let me tell you, it's never been easy. Uh, sometimes you think people are your friends and they stab you in the back. Uh, but the good news is, you know who loves you in your life and you know who you can depend on. And I have that and I'm happy with it. And at the whole time, the Wrangler was doing this. To wrap it up. Wrap, you're way past your three. And he just went like this with his hand, like, be quiet. I'm actually enjoying myself. And I felt so happy that I had connected with someone who, believe me, if I'd done my 120th interview at that point, I'd be as numb as he must have been. But that to me was, interviewing to me is my craft. It's the thing I care about the most in this, in this crazy business. But interviewing and acting are exactly the same because if you're not available and totally present and genuinely curious, you're not going to be good at either of those things. People also grossly underestimate the amount of energy that goes into nonverbal cues um, to instill confidence in what the other person is saying, right? That this? Yeah, yeah. My friend Dave worked at Swiss Chalet as a teenager and they said when offering dessert, you should say, would you like some pecan pie? It's not unlike the art of interviewing because you want the person to say, strangely, yes, I would. Let me tell you everything. That's tiring. Well, it's intense. It's intense. Like um, being, I'm at a point now in my life when I interview people where I don't, I don't try to know too much anymore. I just want to meet them where they are and just be curious, you know, not convince them, not steer them like a donkey, just be with them and they'll reveal themselves because they realize you're genuine in, in what you, you want. And I have to say, we're, we're, we're going to wrap up, but one of the things that I've really appreciated in, in just, you know, reading your stuff on, on social media um, is how remarkably genuine and generous you are. When I read things from you, you're, you're not looking to jump into the pool of nonsense. You say things and I find myself inspired by them sometimes and just thinking, mm. oh, a fellow traveler, a human being, someone who's actually here and who cares enough about other people to want to be of good influence on their life. So I, I, I thank you for that. I really do because we don't get enough of that from people. Thank you. I, I just made a conscious decision about a year, year and a half ago to share how I was feeling, put out positive vibes. There's enough bickering and um, sh people shouting above the din. And so if you're at a place in your life where, hey, I hope you have a great day lands for you, that's, um, that's something easy I can do. And it, it's, 
it's really meant a lot to a lot of people. And I, I continue to be kind of um, surprised and delighted by that. I'm happy to hear that, that you find out from people that it means something to them because it means something to me and I really appreciate it. I really do. Mm -hmm. um, you have your own podcast. Yeah. Tell me. Yeah, about it's it. called Taggart and Torrens. Jeremy Taggart is the former drummer of Our Lady Peace. And it's essentially an hour long phone chat once a week. Um, and sometimes it's silly and sometimes it's salty and uh, we play games and sing songs and tell stories. It's kind of like the campfire uh, atmosphere. And people often say they feel like they're in the back seat on a road trip um, with the two of us sitting up front. So the thing I like about the podcast environment in general is that in this LOL emoji universe, it's a place where you can have full conversations. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes it doesn't land. And sometimes I think that makes the things that do land swing that much harder because people have sifted through the rubble to get to the um, palace. Well, um, I'll give you my blessing in terms of having known you for a long time and uh, loving hearing you and seeing you and what you're doing. Uh, I, I'm very grateful that you have found such a wonderful partner and that you have such beautiful children and that you get to see the corn grow and still be a highly creative human being. So thank God you didn't really nail those uh, auditions in California because it would have been a waste of a perfectly good human being. That's so nice, Ralph. I remember auditioning for a show called America's Cutest Puppy. Um, tonight, the canine move into the mansion and like working so hard not to roll my eyes while <laughs> delivering the copy. I always knew I was more of a corn watcher than a, <laughs> than a tux wearer. Oh my God. America's best dog. Yeah, no, no. It, it's all out there. I mean, if you want it, it's out there. But, yeah. uh, and uh, who knows, you know, if the money's good enough. And <laughs> if it's a fun challenge, yeah, even the, if the money's no good. I'll yeah, but the up. irony is the challenge could be to try to keep a straight face and do the show, but that's not really right. the challenge you're looking for. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. There was another one called Housebusters. Um, say you'd suffered recent tragedy in your life. Oh, no. Our team of feng shui experts, interior designers, and therapists will help give your apartment a bit of a zhuzh. And the copy was really like, I know this is hard because you lost your roommate, but have you thought about accent cushions? <laughs> like these moments where it's like, are you sure this is a show? You, you can't write this stuff. <laughs> I know. Where's the parody? It's too late. It's actually on. Exactly. Oh, my God. Yeah. All right, Turns you take care of yourself, my friend. And thank you, you for too, spending man. some time with me, all right? I'm so happy to see you. you I really enjoyed this. Jonathan Torrens, wonderful human being, watching the corn grow, hanging out, and doing great things. What a wonderful thing. Thank you for listening to Not That Kind of Rabbi. If you want to support us, patreon.com slash NTKR is where you can go. And uh, I'm not very good at promoting myself that way, but apparently it's supposed to be a good idea to do. So patreon.com slash NTKR is the way to go. And uh, we'll see you again on Not That Kind of Rabbi. Take care of each other. <laughs>